Welcome to the Production Talk podcast with me, Jan of MixArtist.com.au. In this podcast series, we celebrate the modern way of producing music. We want to talk about all things related to songwriting, recording at home and music production. So if you produce your music at home, this is the place to be. Please subscribe and recommend this podcast to all your friends. This is the Production Talk Podcast, episode 57. Welcome back to the Production Talk Podcast. At the beginning of this episode, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the country that the following conversation was recorded on. The Arakwal people of the Bundjalung Nation, and I would like to express my thanks and love and respect to elders past, present and emerging. Before we start today's episode, I would like to just quickly recap on what's really important in music. And uh, as you may know, in pretty much every genre, it all comes down to the vocals. And uh, yeah, in, in most situations, the vocals are at least 50% of the song, sometimes much more. So as a drummer myself, I've always avoided learning to sing and I've always left the singing to somebody else. But just recently, I came across a fantastic podcast that I would like to tell you all about. It's made by my friend Shelley Brown, a fantastic singer. You should see her in action. She knocks my socks off. And she's got a podcast by herself called Singing Lessons for No One. Well, that was really intriguing to me. So I actually gave it a shot and started listening in the car and started singing along loud in the car while nobody else was watching. And I haven't had that much fun in a long time. So even I started to learn singing, which is quite amazing. And I really love Shelley's easygoing, no pressure attitude. So if you're a musician and if you've avoided singing as much as I have, and even if you're an experienced singer, there's probably quite a few things you might get out of Shelley's podcast. Imagine it's basically singing lessons for everybody from a real professional, down to earth, really easygoing and lots of fun. It's called Singing Lessons for No One. You can find the podcast and all the podcast players. And if you want to, just go to the show notes and click the link. Warmly recommended. Okay, now let's move on to today's episode. All right, let's get into the good stuff. Today's episode is a special and it's all about vocals and recording vocals. So because, of course, we all know how important the vocals are, I decided to give it a special episode and I'd like to share all my uh, tips and tricks and insights and uh, what I've learned about tracking vocals over the years and uh, share all of this with you. So if you're a vocalist, this episode is for you. And uh, if you are an engineer or hobby engineer, um, then you sooner or later will record vocals. So hopefully you will also find something interesting in this episode for you. Okay, so let's get started. What are the most important things that we need to get right for a really good vocal take? And it might actually start a little bit earlier than uh, you may think. So we're not really starting with a microphone and preamps and compressors right away. But uh, let's get started with uh, things to do and not to do before um, tracking your vocals. And the first thing that comes to my mind is... 
Stay well hydrated. Um, drinking enough water leading up to a vocal re recording session is super important because your voice cords need it. And when you sing a lot, you will naturally get a dry mouth after a while. So when you're dehydrated at the start, obviously you get a dry mouth much quicker. And that's not fun to sing. And it also leads to unnecessary, you know, lip smack sounds that we probably want to avoid. So get started and hydrate probably the, the day leading up to your vocal recording session and uh, make sure you drink heaps and heaps of water. Um, let's also talk about a couple of things that we should avoid. Um, so before a vocal recording session, um, definitely avoid any uh, heavy foods. Um, you know, the big breakfast with extra bacon, that is not the right food for, uh, before your vocal session. Try to avoid things that are deep fried and heavy. Too much dairy products can affect your vocal cords negatively, so it's probably a smart idea to, to keep it to the absolute minimum. Think about all the foods that make you feel bloated or indigested or, you know, cause stomach aches or acid reflux. All of those foods try to avoid. Also avoid sweet foods and salty foods because they will again dehydrate your body and this will lead to a dry mouth. Um, so that is basically, you know, Mars bars and uh, uh, chocolate bars and uh, chips and things like this. Those things are probably not the best thing to eat uh, before. Um, I personally am a huge coffee addict. Uh, I have to admit that every morning I uh, make myself and my wife uh, a cup of coffee um, and I don't really function well without it. Uh, however, be, if you're a singer and if you're heading into a vocal session, try to avoid caffeine or keep it uh, to the absolute minimum. Um, the same can apply to, to uh, black teas uh, because they also contain uh, caffeine. And uh, that leads to um, yeah, um, dehydration and then again a dry mouth. And if you've ever had too much coffee in a day, you know how it can make you feel or irritated and jittery. And that's definitely not the right feeling that you want to have if you want to sing uh, really well. Good. Um, spicy foods. Again, I'm a huge fan. I just can't have enough spicy food. Um, personally, I'm a big fan of sriracha chili sauce. However, before vocal recording sessions, I would advise against anything that can upset your tummy. Another thing uh, that I heard mixed opinions about is nuts. So some people say that nuts are really good for you before singing. And I generally believe if you don't have allergies, then nuts are definitely a healthy food. But uh, just earlier this morning, I had um, a nut bar. And um, yeah, even an hour later, I suddenly felt this dry feeling in my throat. And there must have been a little, I don't know, a piece of it in my throat, which was very irritating. It gave me a really dry throat and I had to flush it down with a, a lot of water. So if this is your experience as well, uh, maybe... Um, Be very careful with nuts. Let's uh, also talk about drinks. So a couple of things to avoid uh, in addition to coffee. Anything that is bubbly, such as soda pops and sugary drinks. Again, because they are sweet, uh, they will dehydrate you and lead to a dry mouth. And then, of course, all the bubbles, you know what it, it does. Uh, it makes you all bubbly burpy. And that's really not what we want to hear in a microphone recording. And uh, it's, it's a really weird feeling. If you've ever tried, if you feel a burp coming in the middle of a take, trying to suppress it till the end of a take, uh, yeah, look, it's not, not a good feeling. And let's really try to avoid this where possible. Here is a controversial topic. Alcohol. Um, well, um, again, I believe that uh, there can be different opinions to be had about this. Uh, I 
personally don't enjoy drinking early in the morning, but uh, come evening time, I do enjoy a glass of red wine. But I definitely wouldn't uh, recommend uh, too much alcohol uh, before a singing session. Again, for the known disadvantages, because alcohol dehydrates your body, leads to a dry mouth, and it makes it actually harder to sing. You don't also definitely don't want to be too drunk to sing. Uh, that's not a fun thing. <laughs> Unless, of course, you're in a punk rock band or it's part of the performance, who knows? Um, I know that there's another side to alcohol where some people use it deliberately to sort of loosen up and get into the right feel and get a bit more energetic. Uh, we all know the effect that alcohol has and um, if very carefully dosed, hmm, look, uh, I'll leave that up to you. Uh, be responsible. But uh, you definitely don't want to be completely off your face when you go into a vocal recording session. Um, this said, I once uh, heard a story that I found really interesting about a drummer who had too much coffee in the morning and uh, just constantly played ahead of the beat who got a bit too jittery. And apparently they balanced him out with a bit of red wine, which made him uh, laid back, and that was in the mornings. So I'm not quite sure if this is um, a good thing to do. But uh, yeah, my recommendation is to limit your alcohol to the absolute minimum uh, or uh, don't drink any alcohol at all. Maybe make it a reward for afterwards. Isn't that a good idea? Yeah, a little, um, yeah, a little treat for once everything is done. Uh, nothing wrong about that, of course. Good. Another topic we need to talk about is smoking. Um It is common sense. We all know about it. Smoking affects your voice negatively. It dries your throat and it has got a huge range of negative side effects for your health. So smoking is definitely not a good thing in any way. And uh, when it comes to singing, really try to avoid uh, smoking all up. Um, and if you really have to, maybe do it afterwards. But um, you don't want to go for a cigarette halfway through your takes and then come back and continue. That really affects your voice and your voice will sound different and it's going to be harder to sing. So, um, yeah, my recommendation is cut the smoking entirely. Um, you won't regret cutting out cigarettes out of your uh, life. Okay, so a couple of do's now that we've discussed all the don'ts. Let's also talk about things that you should be doing before your recording session. Um, I warmly recommend all kinds of light foods. Um, that is yogurt and possibly, if it's not too heavy, um, fruit, um, uh, raw food, uh, raw vegetables, um, carrots, cucumbers, things like this, or lightly cooked vegetables. Um, if you prefer, if you also like to have a bit of protein, uh, why not have, but uh, choose the lighter ones like avocados, chicken, fish, things like this. I've also heard lots of good things about honey before vocal recording sessions. Yeah, uh, Obviously, that's a sweet uh, food. However, uh, if you keep it in moderation and don't have too much of it, it can definitely have a soothing effect on your voice. We all know this when we're sick and we've got a bit of a sore throat. Then a nice warm cup of tea with a bit of honey and maybe ginger or so can make a whole lot of a difference. And the soothing character of honey is definitely something that uh, we can cash in on here. So why not uh, have a little bit of honey? Okay, so now that we've discussed all the foods and drinks, uh, let's look at other aspects of our lives that can have positive and negative effects on your, your singing. Um, I'm sure you've all experienced good days and bad days. That's a part of being human. That's uh, something that I definitely go through all the time. 
Um, and there are definitely some factors that are completely out of our control. However, let's focus on, uh, on some effects that are within our control and that we can influence to get um, to start our vocal recording session uh, with our best selves, uh, with the best version of ourselves that we can be. I'm talking about a good night's sleep. So if you want to record um, vocals in the morning, uh, maybe don't go out at night and have a late one. Instead, maybe get an early rest, get a good night's sleep, make sure you wake up uh, refreshed and uh, in a good spirit. Uh, you don't want to be overtired as well or jet-lagged. No, um, I don't think uh, lots of good things have come out of uh, jet-lagged singers, in my opinion. Uh, that's one thing that can weigh us down. So a good night's sleep uh, can really make a big difference. And also think about all the other things that happen between waking up and starting your recording sessions. Um, what you should avoid is anything that freaks you out or stresses you out. And being a dad of two kids, uh, I know how difficult this can be in real life. That's not something that we can always influence. But where possible, try to avoid unnecessary stress, um, rushing, uh, anything that gets you into a freaked out um, uh, mood. Uh, try to avoid those things. If you can, instead, go for a walk. Uh, get out and do something for yourself. Do something that is beneficial for your mental well-being. And uh, there are so many things we can do these days. So a walk is a great thing. Um, um, if you can, go for a yoga session. Um, that's definitely something that makes you feel better within your own body. Uh, meditation, swim, uh, surfing uh, is warmly recommended if this is your thing, or just a beach walk if you can. Um, whatever it is, go for a run or a gym workout. But uh, I'm talking about activities that probably cont uh, involve that probably involve uh, fresh air, some kind of uh, physical activity and definitely in absence of screens and alerts and notifications the things that get our mind occupied and uh, distracted so a bit of extra time let it be 20 minutes or half an hour of dedicated time for yourself is definitely a good thing that can get you into the best version of yourself that you want to be before we even start the vocal recording session Okay, good. I think this is enough uh, about preparing yourself uh, for the vocal recording session. Now let's talk about preparing the recording gear. Um, how to get the best vocal sound of the gear that you have. Well, um, we need to talk about microphones for a second. In most situations, vocals are recorded with large diaphragm condenser microphones. Uh, today I'm using one myself for uh, this episode. And uh, when you see vocal recording sessions in studios, that's exactly what they do. But there are definitely exceptions. And we should probably talk about the pros and cons of using large diaphragm condenser microphones. Whenever you use one of those, uh, be aware that they pick up... Um, a large amount of details. They uh, capture the space that you're in in a lot of details, ambient noise, um, you know, tra traffic noise in the distance. Those things tend to be more prominent on uh, on large diaphragm condenser microphones than on other types. So you can now use this knowledge to your advantage if you have a quiet room like I do. 
then a large diaphragm condenser microphone is generally a fantastic choice. But if you record at home, um, if you deal with ambient noise, then switching to a different microphone type, such as a moving coil or dynamic microphone, as they're called, um, can actually give you, well, a less amount of detail on your voice. But once the music is placed around it, that often blends in quite all right. And uh, they tune out the ambient sound better than large diaphragm condensers do. They seem to be more directional and, and reject quieter um, surrounding sounds, ambient sounds, better than large diaphragm condensers do. So, yeah, that is uh, definitely something to consider. This said, large diaphragm condensers are definitely um, a very good choice if you want to have this very intimate vocal sound, the sound where the voice basically seems to be right next to your ear, right next to you. Um, that's what you can get from a large diaphragm condenser microphone. And uh, yeah, they're just very beautiful in tone, often with a little bit of coloration in the upper mids. Obviously, that depends on the microphone. But um, especially the budget ones are often also subject to, you know, a little bit of a bump in the sibilance range. So that is something to consider, the hissy s sounds. And um, if a microphone picks too much of it, um, if, if your microphone picks up too much of it, switching to a different microphone type might be a smart choice. Um, if sibilance is too prominent in your vocal recording... You can also play with angling the microphone slightly different. The microphone doesn't necessarily have to be straight in front of uh, the singer's mouth. Um, you can play with the distance. You can, for example, increase the distance, but you can also uh, change the angle. So I'm now speaking a bit sideways into the microphone so it's not right in front of my mouth. And I'm sure you can already hear the difference that this just made. So I'm now turning back into it and all the detail is coming up. But also, you know, some of the brightness. And if that's too much, getting the microphone slightly off axis can actually help. Good. A couple of examples of microphones that I have used are, of course, you know, the uh, budget microphones from, let's say, Rode. The NT, um, what's it called, NT1A uh, comes to my mind, which I find is a very good microphone considering the price tag. So you get a really uh, good sound um, from this microphone for uh, just a couple of hundred bucks. But there are also other examples like the uh, Audio Technicas. They have the AT2020. Uh, I personally prefer the 4040 a little bit better, 804040, but it's also a little bit dearer. So obviously with a price, um, you will also see a change in quality. If you uh, have the budget, um, you will not regret investing into a quality microphone. Obviously the Neumanns come to my mind, but there are other brands as well that um, do really, really good uh, vocal microphones. Um, it's not so much of a brand thing, but more of a price segment um, uh, thing. So if you look at um, you know, Neumann, for example, um, they belong to the same business family as Sennheiser. And Sennheiser, for example, uh, produced large diaphragm condenser microphones. Um, is it called the MK4, if I'm not mistaken, uh, which is very affordable and also sounds really good for the price tag, coming basically out of a, the same business uh, as the big Neumanns, uh, which are a lot more expensive. 
And uh, that's also true for, as I mentioned, Audio Technica, uh, AT, uh, for Rode, um, for all, all the brands that I know, that the cheap entry-level microphones obviously you know, um, are a good value for money, but don't quite sound as good as the expensive ones. And uh, yeah, most microphone manufacturers have an expensive line and uh, at which you get really good quality microphones. Okay, um, in some cases, it goes berserk. Uh, just the other day, I found an eBay listing for a single a microphone for 65,000 Australian dollars. Uh, I think that's complete madness. Don't spend this kind of money. I definitely won't, and I don't have it. <laughs> so <laughs> that's a given. Uh, and even if I had the money, I wouldn't. Uh, but look, some people um, collect uh, microphones for collector's sake. So, you know, you can't really argue with that if they've got the budget. Um, but uh, larger studios usually have um, a nice collection of, of um, high-quality microphones, sometimes vintage microphones. And uh, yeah, while um, they cost a lot of money and uh, are sometimes also expensive to maintain, they definitely have their place in high-end production. Um, I just spoke to a friend the other day about... Um, an AKG uh, C12 VR microphone, uh, which is definitely an upprice microphone and a lovely sounding one. And he was considering to uh, get one for his home studio. But uh, in this case, I would literally advise against it because a microphone like this will only ever show its full potential if you uh, have uh, the right rooms for it, you know, the right preamps. Basically, everything must be uh, very professional for you to take the full advantage out of this out of this microphone. So if you uh, just plug it in in your bedroom into a cheap interface and a cheap converter, look, it's a little bit like you know um, buying yourself uh, a very expensive Ferrari, but then putting very cheap tires on it. It's not a good match for one another. So yeah, stick within your budget is is my suggestion here. Good. So let's just um, navigate back to other types of microphones. We mentioned dynamic microphones earlier. Uh, they can be much better at rejecting room sound. Uh, the vocal stage microphones come to mind, like an SM58. It is definitely not my preferred choice for vocal recording sessions. I think there are better sounding ones. But I believe that every decent uh, sound engineer in the world can take the sound of a 58 and turn it into something uh, that sounds you know absolutely fine by the end of the day it's maybe not the best it could have been but um, everybody should be able to to take the sound and turn it into something so uh, yeah but you can also move on to other examples uh, of microphones that i've mentioned before in previous episodes um, the shure sm7b is a very popular microphone uh, it's um, yeah, was on its way out, wasn't very popular at all uh, uh, some time ago, and uh, then it took off again. So it's really interesting to see how um, microphone popularity changes over time. The SM7B is a fantastic microphone. I warmly recommend it to everybody, but be careful because this microphone is known to have a low output, which I believe I mentioned in a previous episode earlier once before. Low output means that um, the microphone by itself produces only a very small amount of voltage. And um, while this by itself is not the problem, um, if you then pair this microphone with a quiet signal, such as my voice, my voice is rather quiet, 
um, then you simply might not have enough gain available on your microphone preamp to get the level up into the pocket where you need it to be. So the SM7B is often used either for louder signals, people who sing really loud into a microphone, now they can definitely use it, use it on electric guitars, no problem. But for quiet sound sources, you literally might run out of gain on your microphone preamp. So the solution then is to invest a couple hundred dollars extra money into a device by the name of Cloudlifter. It's basically a small XLR barrel that you just plug into the microphone lead. It requires phantom power and it contains a small amplifier that gains the signal up. And then in addition, with the microphone preamp gain, you should have your signal under control then. Um, this is also necessary for most ribbon microphones, by the way. Unless, of course, you have very good um, microphone preamps that you offer huge amounts of, of clean gain, which not every preamp does. So there are pros and cons to be had. Um, other microphones that I would like to, to give credit to here, um, the Electrovoice RE20 is one of my favorites. I love that thing to bids. Um, I don't own one yet, but it's definitely on my wish list for my studio. So eventually I, I'm going to get one of those. I personally like it better on my voice than the SM7B, but you know, they're a bit like the two top contenders in the uh, dynamic microphone world. Um, other honorary mentions go out to the Biodynamic M88, uh, which is a microphone with a particularly strong bass response. It's sometimes used on uh, bass guitars, kicks, uh, toms sometimes, but it also works on, uh, on vocals. And I sometimes use it for female vocals to, uh, if they have a thinner uh, voice to bring some of the body back up. So that can be a very nice microphone as well in the right situation. Okay, I could keep going. There are the Sennheiser md 421s which are also very good, and uh, the 441s, which are, again, a bit uh, more expensive. But, um, yeah, all of the microphones listed before will definitely give you a really good uh, vocal sound, and they are definitely the better choice in roomy and noisy environments compared to a large diaphragm condenser microphone. Um, just now, I uh, just a minute ago, I br briefly brought up ribbon microphones. That's the third microphone type that we should talk about. Ribbon microphones are uh, definitely a good choice for vocals, but not every single one and not for every single voice. So ribbon microphones have a couple of pros and cons. Let's start with the directionality. Um, the polar pattern, as it's called um, in, in technical terms, um, pretty much every microphone, every ribbon microphone has got a figure of eight polar pattern, I believe with the exception of the Bayer 160. Uh, but that's another story, that's an exception. Which means ribbon microphones pick up sounds from both sides equally well and they reject sound really well uh, from the side, from a 90 degree angle. Uh, which makes ribbon microphones uh, well, an odd choice for noisy environments because you get a lot of noise from the back of the microphone. You capture a lot of, of ambient space that you may not want. So again, for noisy and roomy environments, a ribbon microphone might not be a good choice. Also, most passive ribbon microphones have such a low output that a particularly good preamplifier is required. 
And most standard audio interfaces don't have those uh, fantastic preamps. So um, something like a cloud lifter may be necessary. Another huge disadvantage is that ribbon microphones are particularly sensitive. And I'm, by sensitive, I mean that uh, they break very easily. So you don't want to drop a ribbon microphone. That would definitely be the end of it. They will not survive that. Um, and you also don't want to blow across a ribbon microphone like that. That can literally break it without even touching it. So be extra careful with ribbon microphones. If you choose one for your vocals... A pop filter is mandatory just to protect your um, microphone. Otherwise, you literally might break it by singing too loud into the microphone. This is something that could happen, and we definitely don't want this because fixing a ribbon microphone is expensive. Okay, a couple of thoughts on those microphone types. Um, ribbon microphones often have a colorful sound. They don't necessarily sound neutral. Um, which is an odd choice, of course, for vocals, but it can be the right choice um, for the right song. I guess if you're after an old-school sound, like a vintage uh, 50 sound or something, then a ribbon microphone might be exactly what you want. But uh, for a modern, clean pop sound, uh, a ribbon microphone is probably not the right choice. Okay, let's move on to preamps. The good thing is that most audio interfaces these days have preamps built in that are of good enough quality for almost every task. I'm talking about things like Focusrite, uh, we've spoken about UAD interfaces, but we could talk about Apogees and you know all the standard ones that you find uh, all around the industry. Um, their preamps are typically clean, free of distortion and... Um, let's say, very low distortion, and uh, they have very low noise floors. So from that point of view, there's really no big problem with them. This said, some of them don't have enough gain for quiet sound sources, and then uh, we spoke about cloud lifters, which may be necessary. This said, um, the preamps built into your audio interface are generally of the clean nature. They use transistor technology, which is known to be basically as clean as can be. And uh, when it comes to preamps, we have the first choice of coloring our sound deliberately if we choose to do so. Um, that's because preamplifiers achieve pretty significant amount of, of uh, level changes. So it might be, you know, if you turn the gain up and it, it's aiming at plus 60 decibels, that actually multiplies the input voltage by a factor of a thousand. So it would take something up from a single millivolt to full volt. Um, some preamps leave more or less of a colorful uh, sound um, on the signal as they do so. So when it comes to the preamps that do have a sound, I would definitely say that um, one should be very careful about the entry segment of the market. So I'm talking about cheap tube preamps and so on. They usually uh, don't really do what you think they do. And uh, often that actually sounds better when you when you use a clean one instead, instead at least to my ears. But there are some higher quality, some high-end preamps that use colorful technologies such as uh, valves and tubes uh, that can actually have a very lovely sound. You know? So Avalon brands come to mind, but they're very pricey. 
Uh, I've used the SPL Gold Mic preamp before, which has a very strong tube sound, I've found, uh, which can be exactly what you want, or sometimes it just isn't. Um, those preamps are definitely not the cheap ones, and I'm not aware about any cheap solutions there that sound uh, like a million dollars. Uh, by my understanding, you might be even better off just leaving it clean and ask your mix engineer later to do something if a colorful sound is what you're after. The other category of preamps that adds color are transformer-based um, technologies. So basically, um, they could use different types of amplification circuits, but either input or output or both uh, stages, um, input and output stages, can might be uh, transformer-driven. And uh, the ones that come to my mind are the Neves, you know, the uh, legendary 1073. It's very expensive. And uh, I've studied the insights of that. And, you know, there's a lot of smart engineering going on. Um, by my understanding, the majority of the Neve sound comes out of the transformer components. And they're very expensive by themselves. So they use... Um, Carnal transformers and they cost several hundred dollars each for the input and then again for the output transformer. So obviously the price tag on those preamps is definitely up there. This said, I'm a big fan of transformers. Uh, I'm literally just waiting for uh, to take delivery for a couple of uh, vintage preamps with uh, transformers for my studio just to have more uh, colorful choices at hand uh, if I need it. And I can't wait, so hopefully... Um, in over the next few weeks, I will take delivery. They are getting modded and uh, by an electronics engineer at the moment. Okay, good. Uh, that's the preamps. So um, stick with the ones on your audio interface. Uh, if you want to invest into external ones, get a proper one. The cheap ones are not worth it, in my opinion. If you work with an external preamp, you can consider to plug in a compressor in between your preamp and your um, audio interface. Um, that is a choice that you may take. Um, there is no law that requires that. If you don't, that's perfectly fine. As a general rule, um, uh, when it comes to compression, is if you are in doubt about what you're doing, don't do it. That's a general rule. However, if you're very confident and you know exactly how to drive a compressor and uh, you know that's the way it is, commit to it. Why not plug it between your preamp and your interface and record the sound through the compressor? Uh, I personally do it whenever I uh, feel like it, which is most of the time. Good. Um, if I can, I actually work into two compressors. If possible, I patch my preamp through a fast compressor first and adjust it so that it basically doesn't do much at all unless the singer belts out a really loud note. So the compressor is basically sitting there like a protective device, um, allowing the singing to travel through with very little action. But uh, on, on really loud explosives, for example, or on a loud yell, the compressor can jump into action and reduce signal slightly. The way I like to drive my compressors is as little as possible, which means I'm using a, a subtle ratio, not a very strong one, uh, and I don't drive it far into gain reduction. Um, if I use one of those compressors, I usually follow up with a second compressor afterwards, which is often a more colorful compressor, um, and it's set to respond a little bit slower to sound, and it sort of sits behind the first compressor and uh, just sort of, you know, operates on the entire 
vocal take and sort of massages the signal, the voice, as it goes into the converter uh, to just balance uh, yeah, volume differences uh, slightly. Again, I don't uh, use strong ratios and I again don't use strong uh, uh, gain reduction. So often something like 2, 3, occasionally 4 dBs of gain reduction might be all that this compressor is seeing. Okay, good. Um, then we should also talk about other things we may want to add to vocals. Um, one thing that comes to mind, of course, is reverb. And for a vocal recording session, I don't think reverb is optional. I would say it's mandatory. However, I will never print my reverb into the vocal as I track. While I do that with compressors and sometimes EQs, I will definitely not do that uh, with, voc uh, with reverb. For the reason that I know as a mix engineer that the amount of reverb that I want on my voice often needs to change even very late in the mix. And in most mixes that I do, the amount of reverb varies between verse and chorus, for example, or intro and middle eight. So I actually need to have more control over that later. And I do not like to print a reverb into the vocals because that robs me of the ability to mix it to, to the degree I want to. This said, uh, reverb is still necessary. You need it in your headphones. That's what I call a comfort reverb or recording reverb that's just sitting there. You hear yourself with added reverb in your cans um, and that gives you a more comfortable sound when you sing. It also helps to to um, keep the pitch a bit, little bit better if there's a little bit of room reflections coming through your headphones. So the best way to add that reverb is therefore non-destructive, means not in the recording path. So it can be simply added in your DAW. Um, it can be added through your mixer if you want to, but just make sure that the uh, reverb is just literally there to make you feel comfortable when you track, and it's not actually recorded. I'm pretty strong on this, and I don't think there are many exceptions we would consider differently. Okay. So now let's build up a good headphone mix. So good singing performance all starts with a good sounding headphone mix. If you've ever tried to lay down great performances and you couldn't hear yourself or the headphone mix was completely out of balance, you might uh, know just how hard it can be to hit the notes right and, and sound comfortable within your performance. So if we imagine a larger band recording, uh, maybe, you know, drums have been recorded with something like 10 or 12 or maybe in 14 microphones, there's a bass uh, that has been recorded with microphones one or two and maybe with DI and let's say we have stacks of guitars, uh, both re always recorded with two microphones and maybe also DI. Um, don't add all of those into your headphone mix. So if you can, make it more minimalistic. So if you think about the physical space between your speakers, that's a canvas that you have to balance sounds. And now if you translate this to headphones, there's literally less space between headphones, which to me also means there's less space for individual elements. That's why I try to make my headphone mixes as minimalistic as I can. So if I, let's say, had uh, two or maybe three kick microphones, I would make a choice and use only one for uh, the headphones. And it's usually the one that translates best to headphones. So if I have a sub-microphone, for example, that produces a lot of sub-bass frequencies that will not end up in the headphones at all, I will choose the microphone, the kick microphone, that has a lot of clarity, uh, in enough attack, a bit of bass, but maybe not too much. 
Um, same for the snare. If there's a snare top and bottom microphone, I will immediately cull the um, snare bottom microphone and only the snare top microphone ends up in the uh, headphone mix. A bit, bit of reverb, by the way, for the snare is always pretty, so why not? Um, and then I usually add the overheads and see if that makes uh, a good sounding drum set. So if I can, I even you know, drop my toms from the headphone mix, kick, snare, and uh, overheads, so four signals. The overheads, of course, panned left, right. Uh, that might already be a really good uh, drum sound. That might be all you need. I only ever add toms if they play an important role. If they take the rhythmical lead somewhere in the song, then maybe I'll throw in the toms as well. If they just play it for an occasional fill here and there, then I actually wouldn't bother adding them into the headphone mix. Let's move on to the bass guitar. Um, if you have more than one microphone, again, the cleaner, um, brighter sounding bass might be the better choice for the headphone mix. Um, so the dark, boomy one uh, may, might not translate too well to the headphones. Um, obviously, you should apply common sense here, but um, I often go for only one, and in many situations, that's actually the DI signal. Um, if I record a DI into mic in the headphone mix, I just add the DI just because it has a little bit more clarity in most situations. But whichever the cleaner, clearer sounding DI uh, my, uh, bass signal is, that's the one signal you want to add to the to the headphone mix. Let's add some stacks of guitars. So if you have several guitars recorded, again, cut out everything that doesn't have to be there. So if you have two microphones on your guitar cabinet, decide for the cleaner, more transparent sounding one. Um, the darker, more distorted sounding one is the one that I would probably drop from the headphone mix. And then I'll immediately start panning the guitars around, left and right. So if you have two rhythm guitars, I actually put them hard left, right in the headphone mix to create some space in the middle where the vocal is going to sit. Uh, I believe in stereo headphone mixes. Uh, mono headphone mixes just don't cut it for me. I'm actually just in the process of uh, rewiring my studio. The previous owner had it set up for eight mono mixes. I'm setting it up for four stereo headphone mixes. That's my choice. And um, I'm doing that for the reason that I know how much better uh, stereo headphone mixes sound and how much more comfortable it can make uh, a talent when performing. Good. Signals like keyboards, uh, I always try to record in stereo, so if they are recorded in stereo, I pan them hard left right into the headphone mix. And then of course the vocal sits right in the middle with a touch of reverb, and then I play with the volume. The loud elements that I really need are kick and snare and bass and vocal. Those need to be well balanced, uh, relatively loud. Uh, I then bring up the overheads until they sort of connect kick and snare, but they shouldn't dominate the mix. Um, with keyboards and guitars, obviously they need to be audible, but I don't want them to be un on top of the mix, but a little bit lower, clearly audible, but not loud. So that there's a lot of space for um, the vocals. Kick and snare provides the groove and the rhythmical feel that you need to align your vocals to as you sing. And very importantly, the bass provides the harmonic foundation of or everything else. So everything sort of rests on the uh, on the pitch that the bass plays. And um, that's a trick that I learned actually from a book, that if a, a, a 
the headphone mix doesn't have enough bass guitar, it actually makes it harder for, for the singer to get the pitch right. So make sure that the bass is nice and loud. Not overbearing, but uh, clearly audible to the singer. And uh, yeah, that makes, I hope, a lot of sense. So kick, snare, bass, vocal. These are the core elements and the rest is decorated around it for the headphone mix uh, with a a nice pinch of reverb on the vocals that's what makes a good headphone sound to me okay let's move on uh, what else can we do don't underestimate the mood of the live room so set the mood right by choosing good lighting consistent lighting uh, lighting most importantly and uh, also be aware that uh, colors around you can have a subconscious effect on how you sing. So aggressive colors or calming colors can be used if you have the ability to actually set the mood right for the song that you're performing. Um, you will notice that your voice changes quite significantly uh, throughout the day. So it is a smart idea to try to knock out a song Uh, in one session, let's say before lunch and another one after lunch. But what you want to avoid is to start with a song in the morning, then work on another song for the rest of the day and go back to the morning song late at night. You will find that uh, your vocal sound has changed. And if you then need to piece takes together, compiling as we call it, or comping in short, if you try to comp uh, takes together from the morning and the evening, They sound like uh, yeah, a different voice to some degree and it makes it really hard to get a consistent sound. So wherever you can, try to knock it all out in one go. That's uh, my recommendation. Good, and we're still not tracking. So uh, let's talk about warming up your voice. Definitely allow a little bit of time to uh, do warm-up exercises. That can be uh, done while you set up everything else uh, or as you drive to your studio, who knows? But warming up a voice for a minimum 10 minutes, uh, maybe even half an hour, if you don't strain your voice too much, is uh, money well invested. Uh, no, time well invested, I would say, because that can make a difference to, uh, to your voice that I could not possibly um, uh, match with all the tools, compressors, EQs that I have on my computers and on my, in my studio. Just the amount of sound quality you gain by warming up your voice nicely. That's a really important thing to consider. Print out the lyrics, um, get a music stand, um, print them out uh, in double spacing uh, font and in a large font so that there's heaps of space to add notes and scribbles in between where need to be. Make it nice and large so you can see it. You don't need to have the sheet of paper too close. Um, if a sheet of paper is very close to a microphone, it actually can cause some reflections and especially condenser microphones. They might even, you know, start to misbehave a little bit if there's a sheet of paper right next to it. Have water ready. A reminder for myself. I need to drink as well. Because I've already been talking for 50 minutes. Um... Yeah, have water ready. Um, don't make it uh, icy cold. That can also have a negative effect on your voice. Uh, room temperature might be okay, but uh, not icy cold, I guess. Uh, and then just get into it. And most importantly, really, really, really have some fun when you sing. 
So if you're worrying about your performance, if you're worrying about your day, if you're too distracted dealing with your DAW and your recording gear, all of these things will compromise your singing performance. So it's now really important that you give it all you have. And one thing you can do is turn off your mobile phone, turn off Facebook, disconnect the internet if need to be. And cut yourself out from all the distractions that might come. And of course, I think it's, you know, studio etiquette anyway to turn off mobile phones in recording rooms because we definitely don't want to have the sound of a buzzing phone in the background. Good. Um, when you perform, when you start singing, think about the right notes to sing and the right, del right delivery of this, those notes. That is not necessarily a flawless, pitch-perfect performance. The right performance is one that makes me feel something. And those are the ones that are often the takes that have a certain amount of vulnerability and sometimes uh, have certain weaknesses or performance weaknesses. And that can actually be a beautiful thing. Um, obviously, it can also sound like a really terrible mistake. And uh, that's um, for you to decide where you draw the line there. But I often find uh, that musically perfect takes are not necessarily the ones that give me goosebumps or that make me want to listen to the song again. It's often the, uh, the takes that have a bit of character, that have some imperfections uh, that I relate to best. Well, that's my personal opinion. And I think uh, genre is also a consideration here. So uh, for modern um, EDM pop, I think, uh, you know, it's a little bit different than it would be for a uh, heartfelt blues song. Uh, I think we all understand that. So think about the context of it. Also really think about the lyrics and what the story is actually all about. And don't forget about this when you sing. So if you're so distracted operating your Ableton or Logic and your audio interface and your microphone technique and keeping the noise out, don't forget about what the story is actually all about. And don't forget to act this out to some degree. So if you sing a sad song, um, what's the point of singing it with a happy voice? You know, so and I'm bringing up this example because this literally has happened to me once, um, where I recorded a singer at a 301 down in Sydney, and uh, she was phenomenal singer, absolutely stunning uh, performance, but uh, it didn't connect, and I had to really think about it for a moment, and then I realized, okay, wait a moment, this is actually a really bitter song, but your sound sounds so your voice sounds so sweet. So the message of the song was actually something sad and, you know, there was heartbreak involved and so on. So role play is a good thing in some ways to try to think about the situation that the lyrics came from. Maybe you wrote the lyrics, um, so you might think about a particular situation in your life. Get back into the mood and the mindset of where you were back then, how you felt. And if you, if you didn't write the lyrics yourself... Uh, interpret them and think about visualize visualize the person who's experiencing what's going on what does the face look like what's the expression what's surrounding them you know use your imagination to to actually fall into character as an actor would say and act out the performance in my opinion this is really what makes a great vocal take think about storytelling more than just placing notes next to each other, telling a story and acting out the story. That's really where good vocal takes are coming from. Okay, 
So you can use the distance to the microphone to act out the stories. So um, if you want to get really loud, uh, maybe learn to naturally increase uh, the distance to the microphone. So I'm just trying to do that here for you to give you an example. At the moment, I'm about a hand's length away from the microphone diaphragm. And uh, now I'm reducing... Uh, sorry, now I'm increasing the distance and I'm now at a further distance and I'm still speaking really, really loud. Okay, and now I'm moving closer to the microphone and now my voice is really close to the diaphragm. So I'm basically changing the volume of my voice while also moving my head forward and back closer and further from the microphone to sort of balance out the volume difference that distance makes. You could say that this is already compression, which uh, I think it actually is. Um, so good singers eventually develop a bit of a muscle memory playing with a microphone distance and using that like um, like an instrument, I guess. So if you can do this, use that. That's a great thing to do and it really helps to perform. If you are new to it, uh, look, experiment, learn it, but don't overthink it. Don't try too hard because trying too hard again can distract you from actually the delivery so it needs to help you deliver the performance better. If it's a hindrance, then don't uh, worry too much about it. You can, of course, change level later in your DAW. I personally like to record a couple of full takes first. Um, so it means the entire song start to finish. Um, just to get into the vibe, it's also the right time to make fine adjustments on the headphone mix and to maybe you know, adjust the gain on the microphone a little bit better if need to be. And um, yeah, so try to, to do that if you're comfortable doing so. I know that some musical performances uh, have so many words so quickly that it's better to leave gaps and add time to take a breath. But uh, you probably know which way works better for you. Of course, the other way is to record a song section by section. Just focus on the verse for a moment, and then work, work on the chorus and so on, step by step. The advantage is that you don't have to deliver so much music all at once, and that often helps with keeping your breath and you know uh, managing your air uh, in, a, in a better way. So that's also, of course, a really, really good way. If you prefer the second way, then I recommend to first set yourself out some markers in your DAW so that by the press of a button you can always jump to the verse, jump to the chorus, jump to the bridge um, so that it makes it really easy for you to navigate in your session. And if you work with a friend who's recording you, uh, maybe still work out these markers in your DAW or memory locations, whatever they're called. Um, map them out first so that when you speak to one another, you always know what the other person means. And it really makes um, recording a song so much easier if, if that's all mapped out. Um, I personally like to uh, record a couple of full takes first and then decide on which direction to go. We might even stick with full takes or we go into section-by-section -section workflows. Um, often I like to decide for uh, the best take we've had. Look, maybe after three full takes, I might just say, look, let's just listen back. The second one felt really good. Why don't we just stick with the second one and listen through it now? And now we work on individual sections, so we might find a certain line that needs updating or a certain note was just a touch flat, so we just do these sections again. You could call this patching up. And uh, for this workflow, it's important to learn punch-in and out recordings. 
basically means you place the cursor just before the bad note, and but you also play a couple of bars of music leading up to it where you hear your previous take to get into the timing, into the vibe, into the feel, into the pitch, and then you sing along and you know it then automatically goes into recording and you just update that uh, particular section so if you are unfamiliar with that uh, check your DAW's manual uh, or just check for YouTube videos that's a really important skill to have okay good I think we're pretty much done here I personally prefer to uh, not spend days and days and days on one song I also don't like to record 80 takes on, on uh, vocals because eventually that can get really frustrating for everybody involved. And there comes the point where as a singer you've hit the peak and it doesn't get better anymore. And if you now keep pushing harder, uh, everybody just gets frustrated and it gets annoying, but it doesn't get any better. So it's really important to be aware of when you hit your peak and then say, okay, that's that's what it is now. Um, Let's leave it like this and maybe update this take with a couple of uh, punch-in recordings where need to be and then move on. So fast decision-making is definitely a good workflow. Okay, um, another thing on recording several takes. Um, when you do so, it's often useful to compile uh, the best take or golden take, as it's called, from all the recorded takes means you know might be the intro from the first take and the first chorus from the second one but only the bridge from the third or whatever you piece it together um, this is a process that is best done immediately after finishing the song don't delay this for later because life will happen you get distracted um, something else happens and before you know it it's been five weeks and if you try to do that with that much time in between, it's very, very hard to remember what was good. You have to listen to it again. Uh, you might not feel the same anymore as you did on the recording day. So you might make different decisions and not necessarily better ones, I find. So if possible, immediately after tracking, compile uh, the takes together. It has to be done before you lay down any additional vocal takes, such as ad-libs, harmonies, backing vocals, and so on. So you, you should not record backing vocals unless you know what the main vocal take is, in my opinion, because it might not be a good fit if you change the main vocals later. That's at least my personal take on it. Okay, so uh, let me just go over my notes and think about whether there's anything I forgot. Uh, I think I've covered everything, uh, b everything but the most important point that I need to make today. We've spoken about so many aspects, only about vocal recording, and the most important one, the one that has the potential to give you the biggest leap forward in vocal performance we haven't discussed yet. That is because that one could be, mm, let me say, a little bit um, offending. It might ruffle, it might, <laughs> sorry, it might uh, ruffle some feathers. What I'm about to say, so please don't be offended. But I have to say it: the very best investment you can do into yourself to get the very best vocal recordings done is to hire a professional vocal coach in the days or sometimes weeks leading up to the recording. Let me rephrase this. Get yourself a vocal coach. If this now feels like a knife in your back, I'm really sorry that's not my intention. If I hurt your feelings here, I'm not saying that you're a bad singer. 
But what I do say is that every singer that I know sings better when going through a certain coaching procedure. And I've seen people struggling in the studio um, a lot. And then they came back after a vocal coach session and they were like a new person, performed 10 times better, more confidence, better pitch, better everything. And the difference a vocal coaching session can make is not something that I could match with all the gear and all the experience that I have as a sound engineer. This is the most important punchline of this episode today. So if you haven't considered it, or if you feel like ah, you're good enough, you don't need it, wait a moment, give it a shot and try it once at least and experience for yourself what a difference this can make. I generally believe that we are all better off when we uh, bounce our creativity off other people. And if you can do that with a vocal coach, you might be surprised how much better a performer you are at the other side of it. Okay, so maybe just ask around. Ask really good singers that you may know, uh, whether they want to be your vocal coach. Or get some proper training. And uh, going back to the very beginning of this podcast episode, uh, I recommended Shelley's singing podcast, which I absolutely love. Going back, we're closing a circle here. Somebody like Shelley is probably also in your area. Reach out. There are people who offer these services and who have the singing background to make you a better singer, a better version of yourself before you even go into the recording. That is money well spent. So let me just maybe steer back to something else I said. I mentioned, you know, external preamps and how only the the expensive ones are any good. Before you buy one of those, invest the same amount of money into vocal coaching. You will be surprised what a difference that can make. This is money well invested. If you don't have the budget or you don't feel the need, still check out Shelley's podcast about singing and just go through all the exercises uh, with Shelley because that will be your warm-up exercise that can also be to some degree your coaching, depending, of course, on where you are uh, as a singer. Um, yeah, do something to train yourself up. On this note, I think it's time to finish up the episode. Uh, the last uh, thing that I want to say for the day is as a Production Talk podcast listener, if you are in the Northern Rivers area or anywhere near the East Coast of Australia, I would like to offer a podcast special in my studio for vocal recording sessions. Um, reach out to me if you want your vocals recorded professionally you don't have to i just told you how i do it so maybe do it at home if you want to save the money but if you want to work together with me you are welcome to do so so uh, reach out via mixartist.com.au that is my website that's how you can contact me or via my social channels it's also mixartist.com.au on facebook and instagram refer to this podcast episode that you listen to it and for the next couple of weeks from now on i will give you a discount if you quote this episode okay that's all for today i hope you had a fantastic time i hope you got something out for yourself enjoy singing enjoy making music and uh, i'll speak to you again next week bye for now